0: Morning, Woodland Hills. Morning. You look marvelous. Uh, nice tan, thank you very much. I uh, first I want to start by saying a, a big thanks to uh, Vanessa uh, last week and Nick Cunningham the week before that. weren't they great? They are just fantastic. Uh, we're really blessed to have uh, young Kingdom folks who are passionate about the Kingdom and have a gift for speaking and kind of mentoring them and. Uh, it's just good to, to, to hear from their perspective, so really appreciate that. Gave uh, Shelly and I and our small group a chance to go down to Mexico for a little bit, escape this ridiculous winter we're having. Man, came back on, on a Friday night, and um, uh, we had just left 86-degree weather. I still had the shorts on and my little t-shirt, and uh, we, we pull up in the cab about 11 o'clock at night, and there is this two-foot snow drift blocking our garage. Uh, and so here I am, I have to walk up the driveway with shorts on, carrying his luggage in this cold, and you're asking the question, why do we live here? <laughs> why? Uh, blame on our ancestors. Well, uh, you just wonder. But anyways, so I'd say it's good to be back. It's good to be back here, but here, not so much. But uh, <laughs> Lord, it will come to an end at some point. Hey, I want to reiterate this thing about the food shelf, uh, the, the need for this, um, we are really blessed to have this partnership, and I just love the fact that uh, this vision of manifesting the love of God in concrete ways to people in need—that that is becoming more and more of a reality here. And you know, the, the needs have gone up—you uh, know, thirty percent in the last year. Um, Part of that's because word's getting out that there's this food shelf. We're the only food shelf in the Twin Cities where you are allowed to stay indoors um, as you're, you're you're going through and getting the food and things like that. So um, it's really a, a, an attraction point, but it's something that. You now, this is the kingdom, and we need to step up and, and do whatever we can to, to make this happen. Whether it's contributing food or contributing money or volunteering, uh, that is what the kingdom's all about. We also, all this month, just to remind you, we are having Project Home here, which means that, uh, the church turns into a homeless shelter every night. And I love it. I just love it. And our folks are coming here and coming around these folks and ministering to them, and it's just such a blessing. But, folks, that's the kingdom. And I'm very, very happy to see this happening here. So we are, um, starting this new series, Rescuing Revelation. Uh, I think I'm really excited about it. I think you're gonna find it eye opening and, and hopefully, hopefully very, very impacting. It's something that's just absolutely, uh, a vital issue right now. Uh, this message this morning is entitled A Vision of Beauty. Because we'll just lay the groundwork for this series by showing that this is what the book of Revelation really is all about. But I want to start by having us look at a a real short clip about uh, how the world and everything else will come to an end from a scientific perspective. So let's watch this. The universe has a non-renewable resource few think about. It's the ultimate non-renewable. Once it's depleted, everything's over. The stars, every single world, all gone. The Sun, the galaxies and planets all collapse into black holes And then evaporate into radiation so that the entire universe is filled with radiation and then nothing more can happen. In about 5 billion years, the hydrogen will run out in the sun. It will turn into a white dwarf and then it will slowly sink in towards the center of the galaxy. It will probably merge with the giant black hole there. The black hole will sit around for, oh, 10 or 100 trillion years and then it will evaporate. And eventually... The evaporating black hole will turn into photons everywhere, and nothing will happen after that. The cosmos will then be just a sea of nothing but photons, maximum entropy, our finite resource of order, completely used up. So there you go. Total state of equilibrium, maximal entropy, which is virtually nothingness. All energy is used up. There's now going to be nothing but eternal darkness, void, and abyss, where nothing ever will happen again. Ever, ever, ever. Have a great day, you guys. God bless you. I'll see you next week. (laughs) I I, I will tell you that I've never found this scenario, which is the... uh, basically the uniform scenario in the scientific community. From a strictly scientific perspective, this is what's going to happen. And I've never felt like that was a real satisfying uh, scenario at a personal level or at an intellectual level. Now, they, they say that that all of the matter in the universe, which is just a manifestation of energy, all of it was once, at the beginning, condensed into this super just condensed ball of energy which they estimate, I've heard estimates of it was the size of a quarter, some would say a dime, and I've even heard some say that it was condensed to the size of a pinhead. All the energy of the universe, those billions and billions of galaxies, stars, were all just condensed into this pinhead, and then it exploded. And if you ask the question, where did the pinhead come from, uh, the answer is, it didn't come from anything, it just was. It always was. So the... Pinhead is just existing and then it explodes. And that explosion was so great, it, it, it caused, brought about all the usable energy in the universe. And as that energy began to condense, it formed stars and galaxies and planets. And, and ultimately, everything in the universe is still operating under the impact of that initial explosion, including human beings, our hopes and our dreams and our aspirations and our thought processes. All of it is reducible down to molecules bouncing off of one another like billiard balls under the impact of that initial Big Bang. What I'm doing right now, talking to you, is echoing the force of that Big Bang. It all is about that. It leaves some questions unanswered, it seems to me. Uh, Like, for example, why did the pinhead explode? Every cause has an effect. The explosion is an effect, so it must have a cause. It's a fundamental assumption of science. Every cause has an effect... Um, and every effect has a previous cause. So what caused that explosion? Why did not it explode earlier? Like an eternity earlier, if it's always been, why did it explode then? What changed? Something must have changed because it didn't explode earlier. Now, I've had the opportunity to ask that to several atheistic scientists over the years, and the answer I'm always given is, that question doesn't make sense, because time begins with the Big Bang. There is no before. Uh, it, it begins with that. But it seems to me it does make sense to ask that question, since every cause has an effect, explosions is an effect, so what changed, why wasn't it earlier? It does make sense to ask that. Um, and so when you tell me it doesn't make sense to ask that, I can only understand that to mean your way of saying, I don't have an answer. <laughs> but it's, just not a, it's not a complete theory. There's something missing here. I'm not against the idea of a Big Bang. Uh, you know, if you look at the, the galaxies, the stars, they are all spreading away from each other. The farther out you go, the faster they're spreading away. And if you reverse time, it all does come back to, you know, it seems to point back to an initial explosion. Fine, That's, I have no problems with that. But it's not a complete theory. Things are lacked, it needs more of an explanation. And then this ending that they posit, where it's all oh, you know, second law of thermodynamics, everything runs out, all of usable energy gets used up. So we come to this heat death, state of equilibrium, virtual nothingness for all eternity now. Well, that means that this thing we call existence is nothing but like a hiccup. It's a hiccup between two seas of infinite nothingness. The first sea of nothingness going on for eternity has a pinhead of supercondensed matter. And then the second nothingness doesn't even have that. So there's nothingness with a pinhead, explosion, us. And then there's nothingness. Even more nothingness than there was at the beginning. This, it just isn't... It, it, I, I, it, it's lacking coherence. There's something missing in that story. A one-shot deal, just a burp, and here we are. Um, and it's very depressing when you think about it. There's, something, there's uh, something that doesn't fit the heart right. And then it doesn't explain us. we human beings. We are, we are beings who are rational, and, and, and we have moral convictions, and we're intentional. We, we, we have purpose, and we long for purpose. But in this scenario, we are totally out of sync with nature. We're freaks of nature. We, we we don't really fit. Our environment's fundamentally hostile to to the, our very nature. What it is to be human, because we're moral beings, but we live in an amoral universe. We're we're rational beings, but we live in an irrational universe. And and uh, uh, we're purposeful beings, but we live in a purposeless universe. And so who we are is fundamentally at odds with the way reality is. And then you got to ask the question: How did how did nature, with this big explosion, evolve beings like us who are fundamentally at odds? with nature. Nature doesn't usually do that. And we have longings that outrun what nature can give us. How did that happen? How does nature naturally evolve through natural processes beings who have longings that it doesn't answer and who are fundamentally at odds with it? Something's wrong with this scenario. Now, at the root of of the problem is this. You can't get something from nothing. You can't have nothingness and all of a sudden, boom, there's everything. No, if there's something, there must have always been something. And apparently there is something, because I'm up here talking to you. So there must be something that has always been. And matter isn't a good candidate for that. In fact, it's an impossible candidate for that. For everything we know about matter, which is simply a manifestation of energy, is that it runs out. That's what we just saw. It runs out. And so it's by nature not eternal. So there must be something eternal, but it can't be the physical cosmos or anything physical. And here's where the Bible comes in. It tells us that, uh, there is, and I, I don't think this story is competing with science at all. It's just filling in the blanks. Uh, that there is a God whose very nature is existence. Uh, he, he's an uncreated being. And this God created everything that we now see. And whether he used the pinhead of supercondensed matter or not, I don't know. But he created all that is, and he created it for a purpose. And he created it with a rational structure to it. And now we can understand how we are the way we are, why we are the way we are. Because we are made in the image of God, the bible says we 're moral beings because he 's a moral being we're, we have purpose and intentions because he 's an intentional being uh, we 're we're rational because he 's a rational being we 're little examples of what he is on the infinite scale, and uh, he creates this world with a purpose and intention it 's rather than just being this this irrational hiccup between two seas of infinite nothingness, the Bible tells us that this this thing called existence is a God's creating a love story, and it'll be the greatest love story ever told. And, uh, and, and he created this world with a rational structure to it, which is why we can figure things out. That's why science is possible. Uh, there's a rational structure to the nature of things. We can ask questions of nature. If you're learning the, the language of nature, which is mathematics, you can ask questions of nature, and you get answers. It's hard to explain that if you just think this is all just random molecules bopping into one another. It's what Einstein called, before he became a believer in God, he called it the incomprehensible comprehensibility of the universe. He couldn't comprehend how we can comprehend the universe. Because our mind, investigating nature, presupposes that it has a mind-like quality to it. And if you think it was created by a rational God, well, now you can understand that. But if you don't, that becomes quite incomprehensible. And it all has a purpose. And then, like science, the scripture tells us that this world as we now know it, will come to an end. On that point, we agree. The question is, how will it end? And will there be a point to it? And Scripture says, yes, there will be a point to it. Um, But it will come to an end. But rather than coming to an end that is an infinite void, nothingness, darkness, total state of equilibrium, heat, death, uh, rather than that sad story, the Bible tells us that the end will be glorious. Because this fallen creation will be redeemed into a perfected creation. Uh, the creation that God has always wanted. And and uh, th- that's when the fun really begins. In fact, from a biblical perspective, this this thing we call existence isn't some kind of irrational hiccup between two seas of virtual uh, infinite nothingness. It, it's, it's rather um, a, a, a preparation for the real thing. This is a probationary preparation stage of existence for the real thing that is still coming. And when that real thing comes, it's going to be, the scripture tells us, unimaginably glorious. Uh, unimaginably beautiful. It's a, it's a vision of complete and full beauty. And this is why we have longings that outrun what this world can give us. It's because we're created for and we long for the beauty of, of, of God. We're created for God to be in relationship with God, to be sharing in the beauty of God. And, and we long for that until we have that. There'll always be a part of life that's going to be empty and, 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 and unsatisfying. We're longing for eternity. We're longing for life with God. And the glorious end will happen when that relationship is complete. And that's what will go on forever and ever and ever, and it will be beautiful. All right, so it's a very different scenario here. The Bible tells a different kind of a story. Now, what this, what this series is going to be about is, is uh, the biblical view of that end, how this thing wraps up. Actually, that's not quite true. I just lied. Because five weeks five of the seven weeks, are going to be about the book of Revelation, which many people think is about the end. Uh, they read the book of Revelation like a sort of crystal ball into which you can see the last several years of world history and how this thing's going to wrap up. And what we're going to be sharing in this series is that that is not what the book of Revelation is primarily about. It has some things about the end, and it's glorious, But even that is not to give us detailed information about things, but rather to motivate us to live in a certain way. What we're going to see in this series is that the whole book of Revelation is about the present, about present realities, and about uh, what it looks like to be faithful to God. So if you come from a background where you were taught the the kind of crystal ball model of Revelation, and I I was, I think many of us here, I mean most of us, that's the background we come out of. Uh, I just ask you to patiently listen to this, hear it out. Uh, you, I understand your perspective, I appreciate the perspective, this series is going to push up against it, and I just encourage you to keep an open mind and listen. You may not end, end up agreeing with me, and that's fine, I uh, don't think anyone here agrees with me on every point, you guys are wrong on a lot of stuff, but um, <laughs> so we're not into a group think here, where everyone has to think the same thoughts, but you won't even know what you're disagreeing with, unless you hear it out, fair enough? So just hear it out and process it, and let's see where it takes us. What I've observed is this. Every couple decades, it seems, uh, there's this thing that comes on us in America and to some degree in Europe. Some have called it apocalyptic fever, where for whatever reasons, Christians and sometimes others get obsessed with the end of the world. Uh, and, and when, whenever that happens, the book of Revelation takes center stage, and people start gazing into the crystal ball to figure out the details of this thing. And there, there are people who are doing that all the time. Uh, they make a living doing it, but once in a while, it grips the culture. Every couple of decades. I came to Christ in, in one of those periods. It was the mid-70s, 1974. And Hal Lindsey had just come out with this late, great planet Earth. That was like a bestseller, and everyone was reading it. And they were coming out with these scary movies like Thief in the Night. Uh, and Keith Green's scary song, life was filled with guns and war, and everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. And, and, and people were getting scared into the kingdom. And the Antichrist is coming. You better know Jesus or you're going to get it. Um, and and we gazed in that crystal ball a lot. In fact, I'd say most of the time, reading the Bible, it was the book of Revelation. And we had it figured out. And we knew. We knew that Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. We could prove it. <laughs> and, and we knew, uh, you know, that... that uh, The the ten headed beast, the book of Revelation is the ten uh, heads of the European Union in the mid 70s. And we knew that they had a computer uh, that was called the beast and it was going to be part of the whole one world government. And the barcodes that were just now coming out, that was all part of the one world government to take over the Antichrist. We just knew We knew that this was going to wrap up in a year or two at most and we're going to be raptured. That's the belief that Christians will be suctioned up into the sky and and then the world will go to hell in a handbasket, but we won't be around, so it doesn't bother us. And, and, And we would witness to people by saying, Are you rapture ready? Are you rapture ready? You know, it was—it was, you, you want to be taken up because, man, once we're gone, it's going to be bad. We, we, we found prophecies throughout the book of Revelation about helicopters and nuclear bombs and ray guns and, and Russia, Gog and Magog, and China, and all that. We had it down. <sighs> well, it, it, it seems to be that we're in one of those kind of periods now. In the last, it's not just Christians either. In the last uh, two years, there's been over a dozen movies produced by Hollywood, uh, about the end of the world, apocalyptic movies. It's, it's really capturing people. Uh, ap- apocalyptic fever is in the air, and a lot of folks are gazing into the crystal ball. Uh, that Left Behind series, that book series, it was on the New York Times bestseller list, sold millions and millions of copies. How come none of my books sell like that? But you know, it's, it's all based on this, on this crystal ball, My Little Revelation. And man, it just sells. Um, I, I, they made a movie out of it. I didn't see it, but it's called Left Behind, and I'm told it wasn't the greatest movie in the world. But I'm also told that I've read that, that Hollywood is uh, coming out with another version, of uh, a remake of it, and it's going to star Nicolas Cage. Left Behind with Nicolas Cage. I'm really hoping they cast Al Pacino as the Antichrist, because he'd make a great Antichrist. He's got he's to get it. He has Antichrist written all over him. It's in the air. It's just what people are talking about. I'm getting questions all over the place about prophecy and book of Revelation and, and conspiracy theories which wrap into the whole end times things. Ah, oh, it's exploding right now. And the end conspiracy theories are all over the place. The Illuminati's back. It's it's in vogue once again. And I get asked, you know, do you think that Obama is going to head up he's creating the one world government? That's one of the theories out there. He and the Clintons. Uh, they're creating they're created one world government. Is he the Antichrist? And and they're fitting in with the Book of book of Revelation, this passage and that passage or whatever. Basically whoever you hate, they're the evil ones running the world and, and they'll be the Antichrist. And it's just it's just it's just going all over the place. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do the series. One of the things that concerned me the most is I'm finding in certain conservative Christian circles that this obsession with the crystal ball view of Revelation is affecting people's attitudes. Where there it seems to me that they're they like the Jesus of Revelation as they read it. This, this sword-wielding warrior better than the Jesus of the Gospels, and they're imitating that, They're reading of that Jesus in Revelation more than Jesus of the Gospel. And, they, and there's this kind of gloating that's going on about how their enemies are going to get it when Jesus comes back. He's coming back and he's ticked off. Have you seen a bumper, have you seen a bumper sticker? Jesus is coming back and man is he pissed? Well, that's it, it, the kind of thing. Oh, our enemies are going to get it. They're going to be thrown in the lake of fire. They're going to burn and the beast is going to devour them. Oh, it'll be great. And we'll be watching from heaven going, yay, come on, do it. It's like, ah, you guys, what about, that doesn't reflect the attitude of Jesus that we find in in the New Testament. So this series is something that's very, very needed, I think. And uh, uh, the hope here is that it will help us get a uh, read Revelation the way it was intended to uh, be free of the kind of crystal ball gazing thing, to be free of that obsessiveness uh, w- with regard to the future, and and hopefully to feel the the beautiful impact of this this profound book. What I what I've noticed is that people tend to burn out on that apocalyptic fever. I did. Um, and and I, I, for about 15 years, didn't want anything to do with the book of Revelation. Um, I, I realized how subjective our interpretations were and how it's just kind of guesswork. Um, I, I, it struck me as very irrelevant. And why, I, I wondered why God would inspire a book that will only be really clearly understandable in the last several years of history. And by then, it's going to be too late. <laughs> what was the point of doing that? So I pretty much stayed away from the book of Revelation. And then, about 20 years ago, right on the time we started Willing Hills, I kind of stumbled upon some scholarly literature that offered a perspective of Revelation that I had never known about. Um, and and I, I it, the book began to become alive to me, and it has increasingly so over the years. I, I began to understand why this book was written, what kind of book we're dealing with. Uh, the genre of it, and what its basic message is. And what happened to me was that uh, this book, which on, on, on a literal reading seems so scary, if you understand the way that these scholars are saying it should be understood the way it was intended, it becomes not scary at all, but a beautiful, promising book. And whereas on the surface, if you're reading it literally, it looks like it's about the future, uh, I, I'm hoping we grasp that this book is really about the present. And while it looks terrifying on one level and you look like you have a violent Jesus, if you're reading it literally, it's really a profoundly anti-violent book. And it offers a beautiful vision of God and a beautiful vision of the kingdom and a beautiful way of overcoming evil that applies to us right here and right now. And so our prayer is that this is what we get out of this this whole series. That's why we're calling it Rescue Revelation. For me, Revelation was rescued from just being a puzzling sort of uh, irrelevant book to being a profound book. By, because it was rescued from the crystal ball way of reading it. And so we're trying to rescue Revelation from the Hollywood way of treating it and to read it in a way that uh, uh, we think it was intended, in a way that really ministers to us um, in the here and the now. So what we'll do each week is we'll take, we can't possibly preach through the whole book, obviously, in five weeks, but we'll take a, a major theme that's woven throughout the book and we'll unpack the book that way. But what I want to do for the rest of this message is just read the first four verses of this book, because these first four verses say a whole lot about the kind of book that we're reading and the kind of mindset we should have as we approach it. And I can't—I once again lost my glasses, so I'm back to these silly looking reading glasses that are all smudged up. I am terrible when it comes to hanging on to things. Don't look really ridiculous. <clears throat> all right. So here's what it says. First four verses. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I'll pause for a moment here. Note it, notice that everything Jesus saw, I mean everything John saw was the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And that word and there in Greek is chi, and it can be translated, and I think should be translated even, not and, but even. It's a a conjunctive chi, which means he's saying the word of God, which is Jesus Christ, the testimony of Jesus Christ. So everything John saw was a testimony of Jesus Christ, and so this book is all about the testimony of Jesus Christ. Everything in this book is about the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's very different than having this book being a crystal ball about the future. This is about Jesus Christ here and now. Okay, let's go on. And he says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. This is John, the Apostle John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. All right. He says this is the revelation uh, from Jesus Christ. The word revelation in Greek is the word we get the word apocalypse from. Apocalypse, And the word apocalypse in Greek means to unveil, to disclose something, to reveal. Now, it shows you already how dominant this crystal ball mindset is uh, by noticing that that's not what the word apocalyptic means to us anymore. The original meaning is unveiling, revelation. We use the word apocalyptic to be synonymous with disaster. End of the world, we say. That was a disaster of apocalyptic proportions. It means it's, it looked like the end of the world. Uh, but that's not at all what the, the original meaning of it is. It just shows you how our view of things has changed. This is not a book about the disastrous end. It's a book that reveals Jesus Christ, which is what John says. That's what he saw. It was a testimony of of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, this also identifies the genre of this book. genre is the type of literature that you're dealing with. And It's very important to know the type of book you're, you're reading because that will influence the interpretation of it. You don't interpret all types of literature the same. Now, apocalyptic, the apocalyptic genre was a genre that existed from about 200 B.C. to about 200 A.D. During that period, it was very popular. And one of the things that, uh, that makes it noteworthy is that it was characterized by using dramatic, uh, sometimes even surrealistic symbols to denote historical events and spiritual realities. It, it was, it, it was a, a kind of literature that intended, through its graphic images, to make an impact on people, to motivate them to live in a certain way, it's like surrealistic poetry. Uh, it, it, it's, it's very graphic, and, and there, there's other reasons why they did that. Some have theorized that um, part of this, the, the literature is almost always subversive to the established powers. In the Book of Revelation we'll see is very much so. It's undermining Rome, and and some have uh, supposed that that maybe one of the reasons why they spoke in uh, with these symbols is that the audiences, uh, the Christian Jewish audiences understood these symbols, but the Romans couldn't. And so it was a way of communicating their message in a way that, that if this letter was, was confiscated by the authorities, they wouldn't be able to understand it, and therefore couldn't persecute the people uh, on that basis. But even apart from that, the images are graphic and powerful, intended to make a punch to change you, to transform you. Vern Eller wrote a book, uh, the best popular book I know on the book of Revelation. It's called The Most Revealing Book in the Bible, Vern Eller. If there's one book I'd recommend on Revelation, it would be that one. And um, he, he compares the book of Revelation to Picasso's famous painting, Guernica. Now, Guernica was a town that was bombed by the Nazis, uh, just decimated by the Nazis in 1942. And this is the painting. He, Picasso's making a statement about a historical event. Like apocalyptic literature, this is a historical painting. It's communicating a historical event. But not in a literal way. You'll entirely miss the point of the painting if you say, "Hmm, "The guy down there on the ground. What's his name? Is is he related to the other guy over there? Uh, You know, how old do you think he is?" Mm. Uh, and then, did people in Granica really look like this? Man, they—they they, they must have lived close to a nuclear plant or something because they seem very deformed. Or, or, or is this the result of the bomb that they're all dismembered like this? And oh, that poor horse. What's his name? It, 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 we miss the point if we start asking, trying to extract literal information out of this. To get the point of this painting and to get the point of apocalyptic literature, you have to stop analyzing in a literal way and just let it impact you. Just. Let the images work together to create something in your heart, and when you do that, you'll find that this this painting, uh, at least to a lot of people, communicates something that a literal snapshot ever could. It, it captures the horror of this event, uh, the, the macabre dimension of this event, maybe, maybe even the diabolical uh, dimension of this event, the pain of this event, the evil of it. As sometimes people and today folks tend to be. We're in love with, with literalness more than, I think, any culture prior to us. We just love the literal. Uh, and people ask, well, why do you have to be so opaque? And why don't you just say it straight? Tell us it in a literal way. Why, Picasso, why do you have to be so fancy? And the answer is that you can say things in a non-literal way that are more profound than what you can say in a literal way. A snapshot could give you an actual scene of what the town looked like after the bombing. And if that's what you're looking for, fine, a snapshot will do. But a snapshot isn't going to capture the evil of it. And so he is here using this expressionistic kind of uh, style, bringing out a dimension that would otherwise uh, escape our eye. And so it is with apocalyptic literature. It's not meant to be analyzed in a literal way. And if you approach it with a literal mindset, you're going to miss the point of the whole thing. It's intended to be something that impacts our heart and that uh, thereby changes us and motivates us Uh, to move in a different direction. And to to do that, we've just got to let it speak to us in its dramatic symbols. It's got to be felt. That's why we find um, John saying this. Uh, He says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this testimony, and blessed are those who hear. Notice this. John is assuming that this letter will be heard for the most part. In the ancient world, most people couldn't read, and so this is how you read a book. Someone would read it to you. And we know that the early churches would get together. This is what we need to envision as we're reading this book. They would get together in a house church, roughly 20 to 30 people. One person would read it aloud in one sitting, and the others would hear. And so you get a very different impression of the book of Revelation if you're hearing it in one setting. You're not stopping. It's all one piece. You get a very different impression if you're doing it that way than if you are... Uh, Microanalyzing it, picking it apart verse by verse with your eye towards current events. John intends us to be hearing it the first way, not using it the second way. It's a little bit like, uh, like a, a musical piece, uh, a, 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 an orchestral piece. Um, you hear it, and you hear it as a whole, and it's the whole that impacts you. The relationship between the parts, uh, all together, it, it, it has an impact on us. Uh, but if you stop the, the musical piece every two seconds to analyze each note, well, you're not going to feel the impact of the whole. You're dissecting it rather than experiencing it. And so it is with the book of Revelation. It's, it's, it's meant to be experienced, not to be dissected. Now, we sometimes have to, in fact, we frequently will have to stop and analyze the images he uses. Because he's using images that are going to be familiar to the people at the time. They'll know what it means, but we don't. Things are obvious to them that aren't obvious to us. And so we'll need to stop and 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 assess it, but we're doing this, we're assessing these symbols not by correlating them to our time, but by correlating them to their time. Because the question is, how would they have understood it? And we'll find that the symbols begin to take on a profound meaning and they stop being guesswork when you locate them in their time rather than trying to locate them in uh, our, our, our current time. Uh, If we're assessing these symbols with our view on the newspaper or the news and trying to relate it like that, we're entirely missing the point of what John is getting at. And that relates to this final point. He says he's writing to the seven churches in the province of Asia Minor. That's the initial audience that John's writing to. These were churches that John was an overseer of. And so he is thinking of them as he's writing this. These are actual people and actual churches in an actual location. He's not writing to the 21st century. He's writing to these these actual people, and so our job is to try to get into their mindset to understand the book the way they would have understood it, uh, and 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 and, and uh, to to assess the symbols the way they would have assessed it. See, if if Revelation was in fact an inspired cryptogram that twenty first century people are to decode, then it couldn't have possibly meant anything to the people in the first century. In fact, as I just said a little bit ago, it wouldn't mean much of anything to, to anyone up until the last several years of world history when it's too late. But John is communicating things that he, he intends his audience to understand. And we're, it's, it's true of every book of the Bible that the primary meaning is going to be the meaning that it had to the original audience. It amazes me how people who understand that and they apply it to every other book of the Bible, when they come to the book of Revelation, all of a sudden they forget that. And they're always just looking at how it does it, how, how, what does it mean to us in light of current events? No, it, it, the book applies to us. As all books of the Bible. They apply to us, and they apply to people throughout all time. But before we can apply them rightly, we have to know what it means. You can't apply it before you know what it means. And to know what it means, we've got to get inside of their heads and get, go back to the first century. And so he's speaking about events that are, that are happening in the first century. This is why he says, you may have noticed this, uh, at the beginning It says that these are events that are soon going to take place. And then verse 3, the time is near. And then he ends the book by saying that the Lord sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Uh, throughout this book, we, we find an emphasis on doing things quickly, because the, the, the time's on us. Now, we need to understand soon and near the way they would have understood soon and near. And when they hear the word soon and near and act quickly, they're not thinking, oh, 2,000 years from now. No, they're thinking it's right on us here. If they would have thought that this is about what's going to happen 2,000 or 2,500 years from now, then they wouldn't have been motivated to act quickly. The reason they're motivated to act quickly is because they're told that these things are right here now. And this is going to happen tomorrow. It, 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 so these the events that we need to be worried about to understand this book aren't events in our time, whether it's Obama or the European Union or whatever. No, we need to be looking at what events were happening in the first century. And 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 relate them to these symbols. And when we do that, we're going to see this book takes on a clarity and a meaning that it otherwise wouldn't have. And then we can apply it to our life, and it applies in some beautiful and very profound ways. Uh, okay, I, I want to end by just saying two things here about our attitude as we approach this book that I think is really uh, important. Just as a reminder, the first thing is, is this: we are told throughout the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament over and over and over again, to trust God with our future. Trust God. In fact, that's the essence of faith. It's trust. Trust. And we're told over and over that if we trust God with our future, things will go good. But if we don't trust God, if we take our future into our own hands, things are not going to go good. So, a repeated theme throughout the whole biblical narrative. Jesus is said like this, don't worry like those pagans worry about tomorrow. Don't be worried about what you're going to wear and clothing and all of that. You know, pagans chase after that stuff, but you, 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 your Heavenly Father knows you have need of that. Uh, so don't worry about tomorrow. You can't add one day to your life by worrying about it. Rather, be like the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. There's kind of a carefreeness there. We're to have a confidence in God that um, makes us carefree about that, not obsessed with uh, the future, not trying to control things. This is one of the reasons why divination is strongly condemned in the Bible. Divination is when people try to get divine knowledge about the future. They're trying to divine the future. And it was a real common practice in the ancient world, especially in ancient Greece. Man, they they consulted oracles for everything. They're trying to divine the future. And the reason they would do that is because it would give them an advantage. If you can get a peekaboo into the God's view of the future, well, then, then it, you can adjust your life accordingly. You get more control. Knowledge is power. And to get knowledge of the future is to get power of the future, and you can control your destiny better. And the reason it's, it's condemned in the Bible is partly because you're dabbling with the spiritual world in ways that God forbids. You're outside of his parameters, and that's always a dangerous thing to do. But the second reason is because it shows a fundamental mistrust in God. We're trying to take, try, trying, to get his perspective, or what we think is his perspective on the future, in order to gain more mastery of our life, which is the opposite of what Jesus tells us we're supposed to be doing. It's the opposite of having a carefree attitude. I also think it's misguided because divination presupposes that you have a settled future out there with all the facts already in place, and that's screwed up for a lot of reasons. But that's a different message. We'll come to it back at some other time. So, see, but here's the thing: now, the folks who advocate the crystal ball view of revelation. I, they're sincere and godly, and and uh, and God understands. Uh, you know, the, but what, maybe all they know, and and so we leave that to God. But the truth is that it's motivated by the same thing that divination is. We're trying to get the secret of the future. We're trying to get an advantage. Uh, it empowers us. I know when, when I was into this, when I first became a Christian, we, we, we were the club that knew the facts. We weren't going to be like the other fools of this world who buy into the Antichrist and all that stuff. No, by knowing what's happening, we are now able to control some of our destiny. It felt special. We're the special people who've got the secret knowledge. Um, and and it, it's, it's motivated by, by a fear of the future and, and being able to grasp onto things when, in fact, God tells us to have the opposite kind of, of, of mindset. Uh, instead of trying to gaze into the crystal ball we're going to be trusting God for everything. God says uh, he'll He'll win in the end. We can just trust him with that and get on with our life. God says that uh, he can bring good out of evil. We can just trust him with that and get on with our life. God, say, God knows the right time to wrap this up. We can trust him with that. God knows the best way to wrap this up. We can trust him with that. God promises that Jesus will come back and set up his eternal kingdom. We can just trust him with that and that should suffice. Trying to know the details to figure out the facts of who's what is just a way of trying to get some of the control back to ourselves. No, we're to be like the birds and the lilies and just trust Abba Father and live in the present. Which leads to my second point. Our job as uh, disciples of Jesus is not to figure out the future. Um, our job is to be passionate disciples in the present. God is not a God of the past or God of the future. He's the great I Am who's always in the present. Because the past is gone and the future is not yet. The one thing that's real is the present. And God is the God of reality. He's the God of the here and he's the God of the now. And if we're obsessed with the past or we're obsessed with the future, we're going to miss what God's doing in the now. And that's the only thing that is important. Our focus should be on the now. Right now, God loves you with an everlasting love. And so right now, you need to accept that. That's what's important. Right now, God wants to keep growing us as disciples. Um, and, and we need to cooperate with them. That's what's important. Right here, right now, God wants to use us to impact people and to spread his kingdom. That's what's important. Right now, there are people that God's going to call you to go out of your way to love in extraordinary ways. Uh, and, and, and if you're not present, you won't hear them doing that. If you're thinking about the future of the past, you'll miss this. Right now, God, God wants to use Right now, there are people that God's calling you to forgive. Right now, there are enemies that we have to work on loving. Right now, there are people who are hungry that God wants us to feed. Right now, there are people who are on the streets that God wants us to provide shelter for. Right now, there are people who are caring for that, that He's calling us to care for. Right now, there's beauty all around us that we need to be thankful for. Right now, there's evil all around us that we need to resist. Right now, there's so much to be accomplished. And you wonder what does God think when there's hungry people right next to the Christians, but they're too busy gazing into a crystal ball to figure out their own future. No, it's and now that's important. Now where the things are happening, now where life occurs, now where God is, and now is where we need to be. <laughs> this is where our focus should be, folks. The call is to be a sold-out, passionate, on fire, abandoned disciple in the here and in the now, and trusting God for everything else, and it's going to turn out okay. And even if you die, you die. But you knew that was coming, so don't let it surprise you. It's to be like the birds. Birds die, the lilies get trampled down, but they don't care about it. That's the point. Uh, we can be carefree about this. And and so I encourage us to stay free of that obsessiveness that's gripping so many in the culture right now, trying to figure everything out. Who's this? Who's the Antichrist? Who's the beast? Uh, Be be free of that. No, the important stuff is always right here and right now. And if we're reading Revelation rightly, and that's the goal of this whole series, uh, and rescue it from that crystal ball mindset, we're going to find that that book is a powerful, powerful vehicle to help us live as passionate, sold-out, countercultural disciples in the here and the now. That's what it's all about. All right. Would just stand? I want to close in prayer. And as I do, I invite the prayer teams up here. And if you are here this morning, have any need whatsoever that could use prayer, please come forward. Talk with these folks. They would love to uh, pray with you. And everything you share is held in complete confidence. You don't have to worry about that at all. Uh, but it's good to receive prayer for whatever you need. So as we leave here, I just pray that the Spirit of God will remind us of this to live in the present Uh, to notice what God's doing in the present, to notice the needs around us in the present, to stay free of conspiracy theories and obsessions with questions, to to have an incredible trust in Abba Father, who promises us that it will be okay if we simply trust Him and live with a carefree joy, manifesting His love to all people at all times and all places. In Jesus' name, and all God's kingdom people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Love on the world.